Well, good morning. All right. Well, it's good to see everyone here today. And yes, Saturday, if you want to make the trip up to Ankeny, we'll be hanging out up there having a good time. So come and join us at First Family Church, which is really cool that a church in Ankeny is going to host us. And they, believe it or not, they're sending out a church plant in Ankeny too. That just shows you how committed they are also to church planting. So uh, it's a good opportunity to... To hang out with them. So this morning we are going to be in John chapter 12, continuing our look at the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ. Last week, Cole started us in our Advent series. We were considered in Jesus the diverse excellencies, the fact that he is lion and lamb at the same time. And this week we're going to consider also Jesus as the worthy king and also as the worthless servant. How do those things go together as a worthy king and a worthless servant? And so we're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 12 and John chapter 13 to see how Jesus portrays these things to us in a way that I hope will increase our joy as we wait for Jesus. Because as we wait during the Advent season, we practice waiting for Jesus to come, just as those who before Christ came the first time waited on his incarnation, we now wait on his second coming. And waiting for Jesus to come, for some of us, is not pleasant. It's not a pleasant experience. Um, I hate the dentist. I had a very bad experience. Some of you have heard me complain about this before. I ne- my whole life, I never feared the dentist. Now, I fear the dentist like, like a crazy person. I feel like, I'm not, I feel like I need to be medicated to feel okay going into the dentist. So when I wait on a dentist appointment, it is with dread and fear of what's going to happen to me when I get into that building. I don't, know, I don't know what kind of pain I'm going to experience because my past experience was not pleasant. And for some of you, waiting on God, waiting on Jesus can feel like waiting for the dentist. You feel as if waiting is going to lead to some unpleasant end. It's not going to lead to flourishing and joy, but lead to something unsuspecting. You don't know what's coming, and you feel as if it's not necessarily a good end. And this morning, what I want us to see is that we can wait on Jesus with hope, not like we're going to the dentist, but wait on him with joy. And so as we look at the diverse excellencies of Jesus this morning, as they come through the text, my hope is, the one hope I have, the one thing I want to do this morning is I want to excite your mind and your heart at the coming of Jesus so that you can, as we can as a church together, wait on him in hope, wait on him in joy. So let's set our gaze on Jesus again. Open up your Bibles if you have them to John chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 to 8. And I am going to do a little flipping around this morning, so sorry about that. You're going to need to keep your thumb handy if you've got your Bible with you. Uh, But up on the screen, if you do not have it, it'll be displayed. You can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus 
and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You can be seated. Let's pray and ask God's help as we, as we consider this. Heavenly Father, as we think about this text, as we think about the excellencies of Jesus, and we consider him this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would see him for who he truly is. Open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to not see him as a dentist we need to fear, but as the glorious king who loves us and serves us. Lord, I pray you would help us to see that and that that would fill our hearts with peace, with joy, as we wait for him together. In Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen. So as we consider this text this morning, we're going to not only look at John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 here, we're also going to see another episode in John chapter 13. And these two distinct experiences that are recorded in the scriptures for us about Jesus are going to display for us that he is the worthy king here in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, we'll see that he is put forward as a worthless servant. And this, again, is so that you might have joy as you wait for him. So first, then, the worthy king in John 12, 1 to 8. This episode in Jesus' life and ministry is striking. It shows us that Jesus is a king who is being anointed to rule and reign as the king. And we can see first in this, this display of power as a king. So why would they, why would they make him king? Why would they anoint him? And we'll get to what all that means and why that worked in just a minute. But we need to see and understand the context for how this situation came to be. How did Jesus ever get himself into a situation where people would consider him to be a king? And in verse 1, we see why. In verse 1, we see that Jesus had just finished his work raising Lazarus from the dead. There was an incredible display of power. In the hands of Jesus was the po- is the power of life and death itself. Just in chapter 11, Jesus goes up to a tomb where a man has been dead and decaying. And he tells the family, remove the stone from the grave. And they exclaim, as you imagine, the dude's going to stink. He's decaying in the cave. We don't want to open that and smell the stench of death. But Jesus tells them to open it. And then by by his own words, just speaking forth, Lazarus, get up and come out. The dude gets up and walks out of the grave alive. Jesus displays the power of God that we see in Genesis chapter 1, where he speaks and says, let there be light, and light shines into the universe. Jesus has the power of God in him. He is God displaying his power, his rule over atoms and molecules, causing them to come back to life. This was not, this was as unreasonable in the first century as it is in our century today. Jewish people back then weren't like people just raised from the dead all the time. 
It was as crazy a thought to them as it is to us. Which is why it was such a miracle, which is why what we see happening in chapter 12 happens because they look at this and they can conclude the only thing that a reasonable person could conclude if you see someone causing another person to rise from the dead. You'd say, that person has got to have the power of God. They must be king. They must be ruler of the atoms and molecules in the universe to be able to bring life to a dead body. And so this display of power leads the people who witnessed it to a reasonable celebration, to a reasonable coronation of the king over the creation. And so in verse 2, we see this reasonable celebration. They gave a dinner. They held a banquet, it says. They gave him a dinner. They put up a dinner in his honor for displaying this unbelievable power. He was no mere magician. He caused the dead to rise from the grave, demonstrating he's God. And they're like, we have God in our midst. We need to celebrate this. This is absolutely incredible. This is amazing. And so they hold a dinner for him. And we see in this that they perceive him as someone who's worthy of being served. In verse 2, it says, Martha served. Martha looked at the power displayed by Jesus, and she, she concluded, this is a man worth serving. This is a man worth getting on my knees and serving rather than just sitting down, chumming it up with him. He is worthy of service. We see also in verse 3, Mary's anointing. It says there in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. When you hear this, what you should be remembering if you know your Old Testament is 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel comes and anoints the head of David. God tells Samuel there's going to be a new king over Israel. And he sends Samuel out to find the new king. And when he does, the first thing he does is dump oil on him as the symbol that he has been made king to rule over God's people. That is what's happening here. Mary is functioning like the prophet Samuel, recognizing Jesus for who he is, the worthy king, worthy because of his power and his might. And so she puts oil on him and anoints him. She poured oil all over him and made him king. This text um, that we have here in John, or in John 12 is not the only time this particular uh, story is recounted in the scriptures. You find it in Matthew 26. You also find it in Mark chapter 14. And all of them give a little bit different details. I think, I think it's Mark who says that the oil was poured over his head. So there's a little bit different uh, different. Uh, details that are shown, but the idea is is that he has been thoroughly anointed from head to toe, showing that he is truly the king who would reign in Israel. And we see also in chapter 12, just after this, that Jesus, the, the next thing he does is do his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He adorns a donkey and rides in as king, displaying himself as king to the people in Jerusalem as he rides in there receiving worship and honor and praise on his way. But it's not just any anointing as you can see here. It is an extravagant anointing. He is, he is worthy of extravagant celebration. We see in verse 3 that it was an expensive oil. It tells us, um, and we gather from this, is that it was worth about a year's salary. So in other words, this is worth probably somewhere around $80,000, $100,000 of, of oil that were dumped on Jesus' head. That is crazy. In one moment to just 
dump that out on somebody's head. You don't do that for an ordinary person. You don't do that for an ordinary person because this is extravagant. It is crazy. And it's not just, as we noted, it's not just that it is on his feet. It's, his whole, it's an outpouring over his whole body. He's dripping with it from head to toe. And it's like walking into Bed Bath & Beyond. It's filled the air. It's like walking into a cigar shop. This house is filled with this extravagant display of celebration and worship of the king. He has shown himself to be worthy. He's shown himself to be all-powerful, the king of the world, worthy of extravagant and apparently scandalous and apparently irresponsible kinds of worship. That's why the disciples freak out. They freak out. They're like, wait a minute, what are we doing? Why are you wasting all this? We can do other things with this. They don't perceive how worthy Jesus is, but these women, they get it. And Jesus defends them saying, yes, this is a good thing that they're doing. They, that he is truly worthy of this extravagant expression of worship and honor. And Jesus, I believe, he would have the church look at this and see this and have 20, Psalm 24 in our mind. Psalm 24 is this celebration of the worthy king who reigns. It says in verses 3 to 10, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He'll receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. Who's this king of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord. Mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up. This is what Mary is doing. She's lifting up. She's worshiping. She's responding to the Lord of hosts. Recognizing that he is the worthy king of glory. And yet, some of us don't ascend the hill for fear of this great power. He's the dentist. <clears throat> Some of us are fearful to lift our heads and un- unintentionally attract the gaze of this great power. Fearful for what attention might bring. Sure, Jesus might be the worthy king, but how's that joyful? Lord Acton, an old British historian, is famous for having said, Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. You all know that, right? We're tempted to agree with that. We look at what people would do with power, and it frightens us. We see how people employ and express their power, and it frightens us. We've seen it. We've seen it personally. We've seen it at the national scale and all throughout history. In 1932, the U.S. government intentionally infected a group of African-Americans, men, with syphilis just to see what would happen. And many of them died, went blind. Use of power with absolute authority, and it corrupts. They use this power to destroy, to hurt, to maim, to exploit Politicians and doctors use laws and the power of the United States government to turn its citizens into guinea pigs because they could. Absolute power. Absolute power is what Jesus has. If Lord Acton is right, that means Jesus 
is like a dentist. And some of us are tempted to agree with this. It's no wonder why today, I'm going to say something controversial here, so just buckle up. Today, the African-American population remains the most unvaccinated group in America. And I'm not making any comments about vaccinations. But you wonder why. Why Why would they wonder what the government's doing with its power and its medicine? They suffered at the hands of a powerful government and medical institutions and don't wish to be further victimized. They just don't trust them. And some of us wonder, can we really trust God with that kind of power? Can we really trust a Jesus dude from the Bronze Age... 2,000 years ago, with his expression of power. All of us, to some degree, fear this when you have a God this powerful. And so it's easy to agree with Lord Acton that power is the problem. Power corrupts and people, it makes them abusive. It, may, it turns them into something that is not trustworthy certainly not joyful to anticipate. And for those of you who have suffered in this way in life, it's hard to trust someone who holds power over you. It can be hard for some of you to trust Jesus, simply put. But I have good news for you. The good news is this, is that Lord Acton is wrong. Lord Acton, thankfully, wasn't right in Scripture. He's wrong. There's a helpful article I read in the Smithsonian this last week, uh, their magazine, detailed a host of sociological studies that were done on this. And every single one of them showed the exact same conclusion. What they concluded was that power doesn't corrupt people. Rather, corrupt people abuse power when they get it. In other words, good people who get power remain good people. When, whenever evil lurks in a person's heart before they get power... It emerges when they have the power and the resources to actually express it. The article went on to quote Abraham Lincoln. I think it's funny that Abraham Lincoln gets the, gets the gold star in this one. He says, nearly all men can, sta- can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. If you want to see what's really in someone's heart, give them a bunch of power over people. See what they do. It'll reveal what's in there. So here's the question. What does worthy King Jesus do with his power? What do his actions reveal about him as he employs the power of his kingdom? How does this God use his power when he has absolute control? And if we can get to the bottom of this, I'm confident it'll encourage you to ascend a hill to gaze upon him, to lift up your heads and see him. And so, with that in mind, let's turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we see this next scene. I'm not going to read all the verses. It's a lot of them. It's verses 1 to 20. We see what Jesus does with his power. We see what Jesus does with his power, and what we see in this scene is that he makes himself a worthless servant with his power. Jesus is again at a dinner party. The dude likes to party, which is why we do at this church. He hangs out with, he's enjoying his disciples. And there's a lot going on in this passage that's difficult for us to get because there's a lot of unique first century cultural things going on that just don't translate to 21st century American experience. And so there's a helpful 
uh, theologian, New Testament scholar named Andreas Kostenberger that get, helps summarize this, and so I'm stealing from him. He describes the scenario well. He s- describes that it was customary to have a house slave wash the feet of guests when they come into your home before you eat dinner. Think about it, first century church didn't have fancy boots like I've got on now. They didn't have Nikes or whatever. I don't know. I don't know shoes. I don't care. (laughs) Some of you like your shoes. And so what happened naturally is their feet get disgusting. Their feet get disgusting. You go, you in a first century home, you can't just kick off your shoes. It's not going to do any good. They've got a carpet. It's going to get ruined unless your feet get washed first. They didn't have washing machines. They didn't have running water. They didn't have Tide. They didn't have bleach. And so not only did someone need to wash their feet, but that person who washed the feet is going to get dirty in the process. And so it was customary for a house slave, when, when guests would come over, they'd come into the house, the house slave would take off their outer clothes. They'd take off their outer clothes, they'd set them to the side. And the reason why is because if you are washing somebody's dirty, nasty feet, with your good clothes on, you're going to get mud and muck and dirt all over your clothes. And you don't have a washing machine to go take care of that situation. So you strip down to your underwear, which is literally what they would do. It's basically like a loincloth. They would strip down to their underwear, wrap a towel around their waist, and then go over and wash your feet. And in that culture, those who did this were the lowest of the low in society. It didn't get lower in first century culture. It was the lowest thing a person could do. And so Jesus is at this party in John chapter 13. He and his disciples are eating. They're hanging out. They're having a good time. And what happens? What happens? Nobody washes anybody's feet. They've already eaten. They've gone through dinner. There's no slave there. There's no, there's no servant to come in and do the dirty work. And so they're all just sitting there with dirty feet at the table. And Jesus notices this. He notices nobody, nobody's doing this dirty work. And it needs to be done. And so in verse 4, they've already eaten Jesus finally stands up and says, all right, I'm going to use my power, my kingly power, to make sure that people's feet are clean in this place. So what does he do? Does he snap his fingers like a genie? He could. Do an abracadabra on their feet and boom, voila, clean. Now, does he use his kingly power to subdue a slave for himself and demand they get to work on it? Does he find someone in society of lesser, lesser rank than the disciples and say, get to work? No. Did he issue forth a law with threat of death to one of the disciples, clean these feet or else? No. How does this king exercise his authority? In verse 4, it tells us, he rose for supper, He lays aside his outer garments. He gets down to his underwear, takes a towel, ties it around his waist, pours water into a bowl, 
and makes of himself a worthless servant. This is what this king does with his power. This is how this king exercises his power. Peter's response to this is funny in verse 8. If you read verse 8, it's funny. You can see Peter here freaking out. You shall never wash my feet, Jesus. Why? Because Peter agrees with those of you who are cringing right now that I'm saying Jesus is a worthless servant. There are some of you here, when I first said that at the beginning of the sermon, I said Jesus is a worthless servant. You were like, no, he's not. He's the king. You're like Peter here. You assume that that means that he can't also be a worthless servant. But we see here this convergence of diverse excellencies meeting together in one person. A worthy king who expresses his power in a way that is not threatened by, is not upset by the notion of becoming a worthless servant. And instead, strips down to his underwear, gets on his hands and knees, and he serves his disciples like a slave. That's what this king does. We ought to take stock of our King Jesus, to look at him for a moment, to gaze upon him with Peter and be freaked out, like, what in the world is happening? How is this possible? And when you test the character of Jesus, if Abraham Lincoln were here, he'd be like, what does his power reveal? Well, it reveals he's a servant, not a tyrant. The King Jesus uses his power to serve and to serve in the extreme. As much as he is worthy of extravagant expressions of worship, he expresses himself extravagant expressions of humble service. And look, just look at the depth of the humility in service here. In verse 2, in verse two, Jesus does this knowing that his arch enemy is in front of him and he washes his feet. Judas is here. Jesus didn't leave Judas out of this service. Jesus goes to the person who is most morally corrupt, the child of the devil, doing the work of the devil, and he gets on his knees half naked and washes the dude's feet, becomes a slave to, the, to his biggest enemy. In verse 10 and following, we see that Jesus is not merely interested in washing his disciples' feet. He wants to wash more of them. We see this, that Jesus wants to wash their whole soul, not just their feet. He wants to get the whole body clean, not just their feet. He wants his washing to be like his anointing, an extravagant head-to-toe washing. And this is what he does for his disciples. He is extravagant in his service as a worthless servant. That's how he uses his power. Now, there's a group of snakes in the wild... I learned Google's fun. There's a a group of snakes in the wild that do this thing called caudal luring. I can't even say it. Caudal luring. These snakes are generally poisonous. They're large. They're slow. So So catching prey like lizards and birds and other small animals, it's difficult for them. They're not fast. They can't chase them down and catch them. But they have a strategy, this caudal luring. It's, it's the idea that they have a tail that's a different color, size, and it's, it's different from the rest of their body. So they may have a long, sli- long, thick 
black body, but at their tail, it looks like a worm. It's skinny and, and disproportionate with the rest of their body, and they use it like a lure. They use it like a lure so that a bird will fly and think there's a little worm on the ground, and they'll fly down to try to snatch up the worm, but it's so close to the snake that the bird is able to easily be caught. They use it to attract unsuspecting prey. The bird flies to get the worm, thinking they found an easy snack, but bam, the tail of the snake is there, and its head crushes them. And some of you have been lured by powerful people into a trap. Even though Jesus looks soft and nice here, you can't help but wonder, is this for real? Is he just playing? Is this just nice and soft, Jesus? Just a trap that's going to end up ruining me in the end? Sure, he, deserves, he serves his disciples. Looks nice and humble. But what if it's a trap that leads to an undesirable end? What if he's using caught alluring? That in the end, he's going to leave me wanting and hurting more. You see, this, you see this in the wild, not just in the wild, but you also see it in, in people. You see those men in the Tuskegee trial, those men who were, who were abused by the government, they were lured into that study. Most of these men had a little bit of, they had what they called bad blood. It was the term they used to describe, they just had general bad health problems. So what did the government do? They held out for them, you get free health care for life if you come into this study. Luring them in. Here's, here's a bunch of freebies. Come and take it. And they were in the trap. Some of you wonder, is Jesus just luring me in? Maybe you don't think it like forward in your brain, but in the back of your brain, you're just wondering, is this really going to pay off? Is this really going to lead me to where I want to be? Is he putting on that he's a servant just to make me think I can trust him, but he's really just going to disappoint and hurt me? Some of you feel like God has been that way for you. Is he setting us up just to take us down? The answer to this question, the answer to this issue, if you don't want to see him as a dentist to dread, you have to see Jesus not wearing different hats in the seasons of John. If you see Jesus for who he is, you'll see he's not putting on a show. He's not wearing a different hat in chapter 12 and a different hat in chapter 13. He's not playing the role of the king in chapter 12 and the role of the worthless servant here. And so one day he's going to show up as the worthy king to destroy me. Jesus is not putting on an act. He's living out who he is as his core. And we know this if we just go back to chapter 12 for a moment, you'll see this clearly. Chapter 12 and verse 1, if we compare it to Mark chapter 14, the other expression of this, we see the setting of Jesus' anointing. And it, it shows us something about the character of Jesus. Not just that he's king, but also that he is the worthless servant. We see this because in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, we learn, and it should be up on the screen back here, Mark 14 verse 3. We learn in that verse that the setting of this was in a leper's house. Jesus went in, he didn't go into a castle for this experience. This, this banquet wasn't held in gold and, and uh, with servants and all kinds of, you know, huffy, fluffy political stuff. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> this is the house, this is the setting with low ceilings, 
in the hood, on the other side of the tracks, in a person's house who's a social outcast. Lepers were people who were rejected by society. They were outside of normal society. They were a threat to society. And Jesus went to the bad part of the tracks to be made king. He went into the hood to be made king. He showed himself that he didn't need to be in, he didn't need the adoration of the political elite. He made himself in the lowest space to be made king. He chose, he chose the most undesirable space to be made king, and it shows his character. He doesn't need, he doesn't, he, he's not just king, he's also the servant in this text in chapter 12. In verse 7, Jesus defends here Mary suggesting she is right and the disciples are wrong in chapter 12. Now, that may not mean much to you now, but in that century, that was a huge deal. That was a social risk that shows incredible humility and service. In that culture, for a woman to be defended in public in what she was doing over against men was social suicide. Women had a lesser status in this culture. And Jesus serves these women with men sitting there judging them for using this extravagant expression of worship. And he corrects the men and defends the women. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it. Jesus displays service to those who are socially lower. As he's being made king. This isn't just a role. This isn't just a hat he's putting on. In chapter 13 and verse 6, as Jesus is being the, the servant, we see that he's displaying himself also as the king, telling the disciples to adopt this humble culture for themselves, issuing forth a decree to the disciples that you need to do this kind of service elsewhere among one another. He calls himself their master, refers to them as servants, while being the worthless servant to them. In both situations, it's not Jesus is king or Jesus is servant. It's Jesus is both perfectly in all places. And the most powerful expression of this in 12.7 and 13.10 and 11 is that Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be delivered up to death and through his death on the cross. Jesus is going to conquer death as king and serve his people in dying for them as their savior, dying for their sin. He's the ultimate king, the ultimate servant. He is not just part king and part servant. He's both, perfectly, in every situation, always and forever. These are not roles he plays. They're not temporary acts that come to an end. They're part of his character. This is just who he is. He is this in everything. My hope is is that you will see that and ascend the hill. That you'll see, oh, he's not just an incompetent dentist that I need to dread. He is the worthy king. He's the worthless servant. And that means that if you have sin, or you have past horrible experiences with people who abuse power, that you can lift up your gaze and not fear. That you can see the king of glory and see him who is your servant, who loves you, That'll make a joyful advent. So behold him as you see the excellencies of Jesus as the worthy king and worthless servant. Let's pray and ask God's help to see that. God, we thank you for...
your word, we thank you that Jesus is not one-dimensional. We thank you that he is not an actor putting on plays, and he's one way in one scene and another way in another, making us wonder what we're going to get next. We thank you that at his core, he is the worthy king and the worthless servant. And I pray now that our hearts would be encouraged and convinced that as we wait for him, that we can do so with joy and not with dread. Help us to see that, Lord, and might it lift us up to doing what Psalm 24 tells us, to gaze upon him in wonder and to worship with extravagant expressions of praise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.